Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your mercies to us. I'm grateful for this time of year. We, we as believers get to think of the coming of your Son to earth, how important that was, and not for Christmas cards or nativity sets. We'd ask that you would bless us in this time, especially in your Son's name. Amen. Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 11. Um, I was talking to someone, I think it was, I think it was Greg uh, Evans, um, either sometime last week or this week, I'm not sure which, everything sort of smooshes together when you're 64. But he brought up Matthew 11, um, and I, I said, oh yeah, that's a great passage, and I said, well, I should jot that down in my mind about a sermon, and I... Um, looked at it, and then looked at my records, and said, oh, I preached in this chapter the whole thing last year. Which is too soon. You know, you say, I'm sure the saints have it all memorized. But as the time went on, and I went looking at it some more, especially at the portion that we had talked about, and then I realized that it slumped over into chapter 12, that was the, the last bit of chapter 11, and then into chapter 12, were a great combination um, for a lesson that hadn't been stressed before. As a matter of fact, I don't know if I've ever been in the first few verses since 1999, I think was the last time I was in the first few verses of chapter 12. That's almost 20 years. Seems like yesterday. Seems like yesterday for your Roy, who is quite old. I want you to know Roy is older than I am. He is more jocular and youthful, but he is older. Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, now he's, at this time, if you look at Matthew 11, it's when uh, John the Baptist has been arrested. He is sending a message back to Christ and his disciples. Are you the one whom we're looking for? And then Christ uses this opportunity to speak to some things. And so when it says, at that time, that's the time we're dealing with. Reasonably early in Christ's ministry. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to babes. Yea, Father, for such was thy gracious will. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now it's a wonderful passage for we simple folk of the northern Idaho panhandle, where in a church that is not held together by some agreement on a systematic theology. Some confession we all confess, some creed we all catechize. We all believe, I trust, some of us might not believe as we ought, but we pretty much all believe that Jesus is the Christ. That he is, and his death and resurrection is the salvation of our souls. 
And we know that we exist in a world, you look at Christian books or Christian culture, that have for centuries fought and pursued a level of complexity that is, you know, maybe theoretical physics is up there. Theoretical physics might get you into a level of complexity where you're talking nonsense. I had a young man stop by the house the other day and I was, I was talking art with a young lady and this guy comes in and he starts to tell me how the aurora borealis is evidence that the planet is alive. Okay. He didn't stay long. But he was sure the planet was alive because Antarctica looked like a brain. Okay, this conversation wasn't going a lot of places. People are looking, people live on the complexities. And sometimes as you're a young Christian, you go, do I have to go that route to be mature in the Lord? Do I have to pursue some systematic, whatever one you prefer? There are books, the titles of which are longer than your average kid's book. We have uh, uh, Purgatory being entered by someone. Now I want you to notice some things here. Jesus Christ is thanking God the Father that the wise and understanding can't figure this out. And it's not because the wise and understanding aren't smart enough. The wise and understanding can't figure it out. Not because it is so difficult that you need a PhD in this stuff to get anywhere to begin with. But he says, and have revealed them to babes. So it's not that, that it's just really tough. It's so different that God has revealed it to people who are not uh, the, the smarty pants of the world. It's going to be sensible to babes and not sensible to the wise and understanding. And the Lord thanks God the Father for this. I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You sometimes, I don't know if you ever wonder why I always open in prayer, dear Lord, maker of heaven and earth. As I, the Lord refers to the maker of heaven and earth, Lord of heaven and earth. I want you to begin to suspect, for the purposes of this sermon, that there are different qualifications in theology than between theology and Christianity. Actual knowledge of God is a different qualifying place than theological knowledge of God. We have all perhaps gotten to know theologians who aren't Christ-like. <laughs> got lots of written the books, made uh, their name great in the nation, and yet, I always liked, uh, well, I didn't like this. Huh? 
uh, John Knox was referred to as. He was not very Christ-like, but he was good for Scotland. Well, that's not really what we want, is it? We want Christ-like people. And in Christ's ministry, and the Father's ministry, to whom Christ is praying and thanking him for this, he says, I'm grateful that you didn't go the theological direction. You went the babes direction, not the hot babes, but the babes, like little kids, baby direction. Yea, Father, for such was thy gracious will. It was God's will that this ministry of the kingdom of heaven and the work of Christ on the cross be ministered in a not in a not intellectual fashion. Said Evan, then what are you doing with your life? Because our ministry is in, you know, philosophy and but we've tried to have it be in philosophy and you want to say Christian social philosophy. The things that not that are reading Wittgenstein and Hegel, uh, but uh, reading people and going after ideas that are, are actually beneficial. But uh, this idea that Christianity and this is going to be, it's going to tie itself to some basic element of problem in the church. You know how I've gone on about, the, there's always this issue of trying to be holy by keeping the rules. Okay? This is a fellow traveler with that problem. Christ is thankful for the kind of Christianity that what he's starting, the religion he represents, the will of it, is that it be revealed to the children and not to the wise and understanding. And that he was going to select who to reveal himself to. Knowing the Father, knowing this agent that is being thanked for the, having this will about revealing things to the babies and not to the wise and understanding, that is going to be controlled by the Son. In other words, who you have to go through to get at this real Christianity, because real Christianity is not the sum total of the theological books you read. It is not the sum total of the theological claims you affirm. It is whether or not, as someone called the Son recommended you to the Father, it's like getting into a club. You know, late at night, you're walking the streets of New York, and there's a bouncer out there, and you've got the secret word, and you, and you whisper, you know, I don't know what you whisper in New York. Maybe you refer to the, who's the Secretary of the Treasury, Munchen? Well, you have to use a word like that. Or a strange phrase out of the New York Times. And they let you in. To get into Christianity as Christianity, Jesus Christ has to recommend you, has to reveal the Father to you. And it's going to be understandable by you, not in terms of wisdom and understanding, but in terms of something entirely different. So it's going to be personal. You're going to have to 
get through this bouncer. He is personally big. He maybe personally had a bad day. Maybe he personally doesn't like your face. Whatever it's going to be, you're going to have to deal with someone called Jesus Christ who is then going to reveal someone called the Father to you. And that's going to be the limit. That's his will, and that's how it works. Revelation of the Father to you through the Son without reference, without the necessity that it pass through the wise and understanding. He's appealing to us on this. Look at this, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's something about the theological heavy lifting that can turn Christianity into a chore. A chore we don't want to carry. It certainly turned Judaism into a chore that nobody wanted to carry. You had to be running up to the temple every five minutes with another sacrifice of turtle doves. Another 10% of whatever your flocks were generating. You had to get up there and do stuff. Then there were the rules. He is appealing to you. Now, not only is he describing, he is thanking the Father in prayer that these things were for babes, not for the wise and understanding. He's thanking the Father because it was God's will that it be structured that way. And then he announces that his relationship with the Father means that you have to go personally through him to have the Father revealed to you. And then he makes his appeal to you. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. I've said it before that, you know, at least in terms of my own Christian social philosophy, is that the primary urge of every person is to have peace. And what I mean by peace is a state of ease. That things are in their place. You are at rest. And there's so much in our lives that is not at rest. We're in a season right now of no rest for the weary. You're either wrapping something up in the bedroom frantically, and the wrapping job gets worse and worse as the day approaches. Leslie was up there recreating and wrapping the other day because it was like two weeks out. It's the night before wrapping that things get a little bit, you know, unfinished. But we know what that's like. We know what work can be like. We know what people and relationships with people. And you know what the church can be? You know, we've tried very hard to not have anything functionally organized in this church. Hence, we have problems with the boiler and we don't quite know what to do about it. Stuff doesn't get done, but boy, we're restful. Cold, but restful. What are we at right now? 61. Two degrees. I feel toasty. Does it appeal to you when he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest? And Christ has just told you that the relationship, the gracious will of the Father is to have a Christianity, a religion 
revealed to you that is kid-centered, not kid-oriented or kid-languaged or, or a youth ministry, that, that Christianity is just a youth ministry run amok. No, that's called childishness. It's been revealed to babes, and babes can understand it. And the wise in understanding have it hidden from them. So somehow, as you look at your own Christianity, as you look at your own faith, as you look at your own collection of growth mindset, some of you are more philosophical than others. Something my father always told me, or told other people as they bring up some new theology to him. He said, well, how is this making you more like the Lord Jesus? Because that's the question. How is it making you more like the Lord Jesus? How is this revealing the right thing to you? That which ought to be revealed. When it says, you labor and are heavy laden. You ever carry a heavy load? I mean, physically heavy load? I go into Costco once a month. I'm 64. I shouldn't be doing this. I think about having those, like those rolling conveyor belts. You know how you have rollers at a, a, a supermarket, they'd roll boxes into the, out of the semi. Well, I need that because we come back from Costco with six or seven pallets of water and I have to pick them up and carry them into the basement. I either need slaves or any one of those roller things. They're just Heavy late, you know what it's like carrying a load. When I first got married, Leslie and I went backpacking up by uh, Elk River and made some mistakes, long turnings, uh, went down to the lower falls, realized there's nothing down there. Had to get back up to find a place to camp and going up this 300 degree, I guess it doesn't go above 90, does it? Uh, it maybe a 45 degree hillside by the falls there with a 60 pound pack on my lovely wife and it catching every branch as she's trying to pull herself up the Cliffside. Heavy laden is something you may have encountered. You guys were in the military. You've probably done some marches that you had to carry some weight, I suppose. Who was in the Navy? We never carried anything. We know what heavy laden is. We know what it's like to sit down after a long day of that. To sit down and take off the pack. This is what, this is the appeal that Christianity, when it says, such was thy gracious will, the Christianity he is offering you, you had better be hearing it as a relief. I don't have to carry this. Oh, you have to carry something, but not that. Not a heavy load. Not intense labor. Take my yoke upon you. He's not saying, oh, hey, it's a you know, do whatever you want and call yourself a Christian. No. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So what our ears ought to be pricking up at is, am I one of the people who the Son has chosen to reveal himself to, reveal the Father to? Am I one of the babes or am I one of those pretentious guys that's talking smarty pants stuff all the time? I'm supposed to take on something. What is the nature of this thing? Well, it's got a few things it's got to be. 
It's got to be easy. Easy to carry and easy to understand. Two things, right? It's for babes. Easy to, easy to understand versus the height of um, the height of theological complexity and easy to carry. You're pulling a wagon. Think of it in those terms. Pulling a wagon. What do you want in the wagon? What's in the wagon? He says, I want you to take my yoke on you. I want you to learn from me because I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's the reason I want you to take my yoke. That's the reason I want you to learn this because I have something to offer here that is based on my, gent my gentleness and my lowliness and that you will find rest if you do. That's the offer. This is the appeal. We want to have the Christianity of Christ. We don't want the Christianity of history. We don't want the Christianity of people you do not want to defend. You don't want the Christianity that everybody has thought up. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Now, the reason I attach chapter 12, verse 1, is the next verse. And it seems to be part of the structure. You notice how it says in verse 25 of 11, at that time. And then 12.1, at that time. It's, in other words, you can say, at the same time. These conversations are occurring in closeness to each other. This is what's going on. This is the topic at hand. This is what they're talking about as they walk, in this case, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And you may have been walking through the grain fields, talking of praying this prayer, and teaching this teaching about coming to him. The visuals of the moment step in at that time. His disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. Simple problem, simple answer. We're walking through a grain field. It's lunchtime. There's food. They rub it between their hands, get the kernels out. It's not McDonald's, but it'll do. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You can almost picture the disciples with a little tiny small yoke on their shoulders and these guys following along after Christ that are Pharisees with these heavy yokes, pulling these heavy wagons, pointing at everything and calling it the Sabbath pointing at everything and saying, you can't do that. Now, we don't fully get a picture of this. Manisha can tell you stories. In New York, where there are a lot more of the Hebrew persuasion, they have Sabbath elevators. And a Sabbath elevator 
stops at every floor. So you don't have to push a button because it's the Sabbath. You say, I like being a Christian. They don't have Christian elevators. Because if they did, they'd be right down the top floor, right now. By grace are you saved. This, this goes on today. We might go, oh, the Pharisees, Sabbath day's journey. I think on your stove, isn't there a Sabbath, uh, a Sabbath function? Did some stoves have Sabbath functions? This is not 100 AD. This is 2018. And people are still binding heavy burdens. Binding heavy burdens. Oh, they'll find it to be charming. They'll say, the old wine is better than the new wine. But they're looking, they're getting on the disciples about making some lunch. And you're Gentiles, you, you know. I did find out I had one less than 5% Jewish in my background. So I'm more Jewish than uh, well, Elizabeth Warren is Indian. So there's that. Uh, someone was offering me a yarmulke last night, I think. But I'm, I'm, I'm more Scots than I'm Jewish. So uh, it's a different kind of problem to be Scots. That's, uh, Pharisees are hard to live with because of their religion, yet Scottishness means the person is hard to live with. And if you add, if you add Phariseeism to a Scotsman, and it's just the worst of all possible worlds. Now, what I want you to see is what Je Jesus told you, learn from him. Understand this yoke is light. This is easy. Understand that. Understand that the Father's gracious will is that this Christianity, what you're going to receive, not that it isn't something you pick up, not that it isn't something you carry, not that it doesn't have actual meaning, but you're going to understand what it is without difficulty. And if somebody raises the topic of penal substitutionary atonement and the distinction between propitiation and expiation, you can look at it and say, that's not Jesus Christ. His gracious will was that it be revealed to babes, not for the wise and understanding. You could talk about those things, you know, in a philosophic, you know, hobby conversations. But not for their Christianity. So when he says, learn from me, boy, how much more, how much more intense ought you be looking at what the Lord says about things? And just at this moment, he's walking through the fields, talking about, you know, hey, this is, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. And all of a sudden, a moment comes where the Pharisees object to them harvesting, which is working, on the Sabbath. Look at what the Lord does to it. He said to them, verse 3, Have you not read what David did? when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was, it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Have you not read that? It's out of uh, 1 Samuel. 
I have the reference here somewhere. Oh, it's, uh, oh, I actually have it printed out for Samuel 21.16. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Eaten by the priesthood, not by warriors on the warpath. And David was a warrior on the warpath. So I want you to learn something from Christ. What did he just teach that is in keeping with what he just said? My burden is easy, my yoke is light. Now there's a phrase that comes to our minds that we use differently in different circumstances. It's called, the exception proves the rule. Okay? Ancient, ancient saying. I think all the way back to Cicero. Um, and there are two usages that are legitimate usages of the of the saying. One is an exception proves that there's a rule to which this is an exception. Got that? It says um, no parking except Saturday from 7 to 12 p.m. The exception proves that there's a rule, no parking. The exception accepts itself. That's probably the oldest ancient Roman usage all the way down to Sherlock Holmes when he said, uh, I guess it's Arthur Conan Doyle, said uh, through Sherlock Holmes, uh, the exception disproves the rule. He said, I don't believe in exceptions. The exception disproves the rule. And that's, in terms of just the shortness of the phrase, is how it primarily is understood. People popularly think that somehow if they say, well, you should never do this. Well, what about here? Well, the exception proves the rule. They want you to say the rule is more true because the falsehood you just showed them. It doesn't make any sense. That's why Sherlock Holmes says, no, proves means tests. It shows you minimally that it's a rule to which exceptions exist. The rule exists but the exception steps in as a falsification of the extreme application. Exception of the pr extreme application of the rule. Now, what you have with the Pharisees is extreme applications of the rule. They'd say, don't labor on the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And they got out there with their yardsticks and started measuring how far you could walk and have it not be work on the Sabbath. They went with something far more intense. This is what happens when people read the scriptures, you might say, with a law-oriented mind. Law in terms of more moral law. They'll see a definite, and then they'll say, the definite means I can be absolute, without exception, always expect that this is the case. And that's what the Pharisees were doing with the men cracking wheat in their hands. You're harvesting. Without exception, do no work. That's defined as work. And so what does the Lord do? He says, no. Why don't we look at the law? Somebody you really admire. The priesthood and David. And what do you think about David? Do you think he was ungodly? He ate the bread of the presence. 
It was not lawful for him to eat it. Then he gives him another example. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? That quote is here out of uh, Hosea's... No, I, I just have the reference. Do I have the reference? I don't have the reference. It's somewhere in Leviticus which talks about a Sabbath sacrifice you had to make on the Sabbath, which meant all the priests had to work to go do all the stuff because they're butchering animals and they're offering it up and they're doing all the work they would normally do and they had to do it on the Sabbath because it was a Sabbath offering. And that's what Jesus points to. He points to two exceptions in the law. Now, he says that they are guiltless If that is the case, when I overextend, when I find a passage of scripture, and the fear that you should be feeling is, do I overextend if the word all occurs, or never, or always, whatever I'm using to extrapolate out a complete and total application. Is there something I'm missing that keeps me, that should keep me from turning Christianity into a burdensome task? Christ falsifies their claims of going to that extent. Because when people, if you take a general passage and make it absolute, again, I'm an absolutist about a lot of things, but when you make it some kind of God-not-approved absolutism, your doctrine is going to have to become really complicated. It's going to get really complicated. If you said, you know, all Czechoslovakians are really, really, really dumb. Then you meet a really smart Czechoslovakian. You don't know what to do. If you say you have a rule like that, and have some rule about the Scots being the best looking and the, uh, and the brightest, and we are, It's hard to make your world work when you start absolutizing the rules that way. It's hard to make the world work. You can't get everybody on board in obeying it. Even the law written by God couldn't be obeyed. Let alone the ones you build up for a religious uh, task for yourself. Or a theological understanding for yourself. It's hard to make systematics work. So we spend our time trying to make them work. We spend our time founding seminaries and endowing chairs and writing books of the making of books there is no end. And much study wearies the body. We involve ourselves with that because we got to make these things work. It's kind of like the socialists today trying to rewrite history to make socialism work in their minds somehow. It's the, it's the old meme of it's never been you know, really tried. It seems like they've tried it a lot over the last century, and it really doesn't work. But let's try it again. They desperately want to affirm some things that can't be made to work. We don't want to have that kind of Christianity, because I want you to, if whatever you think of my view of the law and the like, I want you to think about what Christ and the Father have suggested about the nature of this faith. Is it easy? This is burden light. 
Has he revealed such to you in light of your youthfulness of mind? In other words, your easy, and I'm going to call that youthfulness of mind a common sense. Because that's how he addresses their claims about working on the Sabbath. He says, I can think of two examples standing on my head of where people you admire, where it was necessary by the law to disobey the law, you think, has to always be kept. And they are left guiltless. Christ explains this in the last few verses. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Not only did the priests able to serve at the temple on the Sabbath, in spite of the Sabbath law, he's saying something greater than the temple is here. Now this is an idea that occurs later in the passage uh, in the same chapter 12 about... Uh, Well, verse 40, somewhere in there. 41, chapter 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Davis preached last Sunday on the men of Nineveh, repenting. He says that those people, those people who repented will arise at the judgment and condemn this generation for something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Christ is on this kind of claim thread in this chapter, that something greater than everything you can imagine, and that something greater has tooled his, his religion. Remember, this is not some great religious teacher tooling a religion or a new understanding of the religion of old. It is the God who is worshipped in the religion. Remember how we say, we don't try to make a religion that will please God. God is making his religion in us. This is Christ and the Father saying, this is our gracious will, that it be this way. That you walk through life with the load taken off of you. The load of sin, the load of anxieties, the load of of wanting to get ahead, load of fear of death, whatever it is, the load is taken off. So because something greater than everything else you could imagine, everything had gone before. Something is greater than David, greater than Jonah, greater than, than, than Solomon. And, verse 7, he says, if you had known what this means, and you should be on your toes here, right? If you had only known what this means. Every once in a while, Jesus Christ gets a little, you know, when he says to the Sadducees, is the, this is because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Is not this why you are wrong? When Jesus gets a little bit direct about things, the Samaritans healed of leprosy, wasn't there ten of you? You sort of hear that real human statement, that real, let's just say, real personal statement. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy. It's out of Hosea. It's out of Hosea, I think, in the Septuagint, which I have here on the side. What shall I do unto thee, Ephraim? What shall I do to thee, Judah? 
Whereas your mercy is as a morning cloud and as the early dew that goes away, therefore I have mown down your prophets. I have slain them with the word of my mouth, and my judgment shall go forth as the light. For I will have mercy rather than sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than whole burnt offerings. Somehow, the Jews were missing the meaning. If you had known what it was when I said I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Remember, he just told you that the, the priests who offered Sabbath sacrifices were guiltless. It wasn't like they had a unnecessary evil. And how many of us would want to create necessary evil because two of our rules conf- you know, co- you know, came into conflict and we have to obey one rather than the other. So we say, well, yeah, to be righteous with one, you have to be wicked with another. Christ is saying they're guiltless. Not necessarily guilty, impossibly having to go one way or the other. If I don't know what this means, that means I don't know my God because he doesn't remember such was thy gracious will that he revealed it to babes. Such was thy gracious will that they re- he would reveal that truth to us through the Son. And the Son was bringing to us his mercy. His yoke easy, his burden light. He cares for us. Cast your, ca- your cares on him for he cares about you. Troubles on him for he cares about you. Do we understand mercy? Or would we rather have a religion that has you bowing and scraping at the appropriate moments to please the God? Would you rather have sacrifices? Because sacrifices are much easier because you just have to count up, okay, do I have enough animals for sacrifice? Do I have time to get down to the tabernacle and have this many sheep killed for my religious observations? Have I paid my fair share into the coffers with my tithe? What am I supposed to do? Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. The Lord's looking at you saying, I'd rather have you be a holy person who is merciful. Not a liberal person who doesn't think morality exists, but a holy person that is a merciful person. The merciful person doesn't have to give up his view of sin and righteousness. The merciful person just has to quit being such a prig about it. Quit being so pious about it. They need to have mercy and not say, unless you keep all the rules and don't walk through a field and pick the grain. If we had known what this means. Do you know, do you have a great relationship with mercy? Your own and what you're offering to other people. We prayed for various people, our children, Shay, Tabitha, all sorts of people that we care about who need the mercies of God. And that's what we're selling. That's what we're handing out. That's what we're preaching. So many of us men would rather talk about the complexities. Be sure that you know all that is easy. Because as soon as you get into the complexities, not only does the religion start to become necessarily complex for only the wise and understanding. 
But we start to shun people that don't... Ever been in that discussion, uh, what minimal knowledge and belief does it take to become a Christian? There are always some people who start adding on theology. Well, I don't think unless they view it a premillennial rapture of the church and a personal death. And, and then they start, your, your list might be different. If I don't believe in the triune God, the Trinity, doctrine of the Trinity, never talked about in the scriptures. Um, I believe in the Trinity, but I don't see anywhere in the scriptures. We create complexities and we create a different religion that becomes heavy. We bind burdens heavy to bear. We need to stop and say, I need to understand mercy more. I was uh, mentioning, uh, Davis had mentioned it some last week and mentioned it to a few of you, how a lot of times it's what our thoughts are on that help us out in situations that we need to be helped out with that if we thought less about a religion of service to God and thought more about mercy, we would be in a better place. Like it is with, if I thought more about justice, I would have more victory over anger because the problem is I'm not a just person when I'm sinfully angry. I'm not a religious person when I sacrifice. I'm a religious person in God's sight His gracious will is that it all be about mercy. You've heard me say that I think Satan's, and I have no proof for this, my suspicion that Satan's sin was that he didn't like mercy. God knew what the rules were. Satan knew what the rules were. And he didn't like God's mercy. That's just an idea. Pursue it if you want. But whatever the case, you need to like mercy. Because you need mercy. Verse 8, the last verse, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Big, big plan. Something greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than the Sabbath. We are not serving the Sabbath. The Sabbath existed as a rule. The exceptions to it prove that it existed as a rule, a rule that could have exceptions, driven by mercy and righteousness. When the Pharisees react, the exception, the exception shows how extenuated their religious views are. They're surprised when you hear an exception in the scripture. This is always wrong. You can never work on the Sabbath. What about the sacrifice on the Sabbath? Does that work? Yes, it is. They find out they're artificially pious, artificially righteous. They are not the Lord's. The Pharisees are not. The Sabbath is not the Lord. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So it really comes down to deciding who, because it's personal, who you are, 
who you serve as Lord and who has that Lord declared himself to be if he's your Lord and he says I'm the Lord of the Sabbath so don't get all huffy about the Sabbath with me because I deserve your allegiance and if I say have mercy pull the, sh- the sheep out of the well you know Brian had to go look at our furnace on the Sabbath well yesterday was the Sabbath actually but okay, if we had to do work on the Sabbath we could do it because mercy is more important understand who your Lord is understand what the task the, the, the flavor of your Christianity is supposed to be it's to surround mercy we're not talking about giving in to every sin we're not talking about agreeing with sins sins are still sins but some things that we think are sins aren't and some things when they are sins mercy is the right answer let's thank God dear Lord we're grateful for your mercy we're grateful that you are a God of mercy we're grateful that you are a righteous and holy God as well we'd ask that we would come up with the kind of thinking that our simplicity of mind, our common sense, our regular reading of the text, where we see the examples of your blessing going out, even where the law was broken, we'd ask that you would give us that kind of mind that would see and recognize both your laws, your imperatives, and your heart of mercy. That we would learn to live that way so that we could walk through life with ease. In your Son's name, amen.